Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Ved Sen. Ved is a consultant, author, and speaker who for two decades has worked at what he describes memorably as the interface of business and emerging technology. He's based in London and is currently a digital evangelist for Tata Consultancy Services, and in the past, he has worked at startups and big companies. Um, you can follow Ved on uh, Twitter at Ved Sen, and you can read his professional blog at thefuture2go.wordpress.com and his really engaging personal blog at vedsen.wordpress.com. Ved is the author of a LeanPub book, Doing Digital, Connect, Quantify, Optimize. The book is uh, intended to be a guide for people who are not technical but require better understanding of all things digital, particularly if their business or employer is undergoing some form of a digital transformation, whether it's in AI, data design, or software development generally. As it says on the book's landing page, anyone who works for a living needs to understand digital and its impact, uh, which is a running theme in our interviews for this podcast, and I'm looking forward to talking to Ved about this subject. In this interview, we're going to talk about Ved's professional interests, his books, or his book, and, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience using LeanPub a little bit. Um, so thank you for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thanks very much, Len. Um, LeanPub has been a pretty amazing platform, actually. I mean, we'll come back to that, I'm sure, later, but I, I, when I started writing this book, I thought, wouldn't it be great to be able to write it? in an agile way and, and release version one and version two. And that was before I came across LeanPub. So it was pretty amazing to hit LeanPub and realize that someone's actually thought of this and it's all available. Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for what I call their origin story. Um, and in your case, I know you've had a varied career across advertising and business journalism and lots of other things. But um, I saw from LinkedIn that you grew up uh, in Kolkata uh, in India. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that was like, um, your early education and what it was like growing up there. Sure. Um, you're absolutely right that I did bounce around a lot and um, probably took me a long time to discover um, what it was I wanted to be. But a big part of that was, you know, um, I grew up in India, as you said, in the 80s and and um, 70s. And that was kind of, um, you know, it, it was definitely growing up in a poor country at the time. It wasn't that, you know, I was particularly in a, in a uh, growing up in a poor family. But you were always exposed to poverty, um, and therefore the entire education system was always geared towards you know just working really hard and and putting all your effort into just doing well academically. Um, all that kind of bypassed me, so I bounced around within the education system as well. But it was certainly uh, all around me were the signs that you know there was only one way out, and and the difference between doing well and not doing well was very stark. And I think you'll find that across a lot of people of my generation you know, uh, coming out of places like India. It's interesting you say that when I was reading, um, uh, you know, about your education history in, in LinkedIn. Um, I saw that you went to IAM in uh, Ahmedabad. Um, yep. And um, for those listening, um, this is a very prestigious institution. Um, uh, and... It reminded me, I, I visited India for about six weeks in, uh, 2000, or in 1995, sorry. Um, and I was, you know, in my undergrad days at the time with a friend, visiting with a friend from Patna. Um, uh, and um, all his friends were around the same age, naturally enough, and his cousins were too. And I still remember the intensity around, and in fact, some of the phrasing that they used to describe was similar to what you just did, used um, to describe the situation when you're young and uh, planning your education. And I mean, I would meet people who were, you know, had a, were taking an entire year to study for a particular exam. Um, and uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that experience was like for you. I mean, did, did, you, did you 
take it that that intensely? Um, yes, in a way, um, you know, by the time I got around to thinking about life seriously, um, you know, studying management was pretty much the one thing that I really wanted to do. Um, you know, and, and when I look back, it, it's it's frightening how little we knew about life at that point of time mm-hmm. um, and how, how what a loose grasp of reality you have when you're 20. Um, but it was, you know, it was kind of the one North Star for me. Um, and despite having a very spotty academic background and and uh, track record, I sort of really focused myself on getting through that very competitive entrance exam and then the group discussions and, and an interview process. So um, that was all very intense. Um, I kind of um, think I got a wild card entry into the IIM Ahmedabad. Um but yeah, it was um, it was really something that when you start the process, you think it's just beyond your reach. And what was the interview process like? Um, gentle, actually, when when I think back. Um, but I think they they wanted to probe. You know, it was partly academic. They would you know they would because I had an undergraduate. Uh, sort of degree in economics, they, they probed a lot of, you know, micro and macroeconomic questions, asked me a bunch of questions, and then they moved on to interests and, and there were questions on value systems. I think that was the time, um, uh, I forget who it was, but one of the major sports people in the U.S. was under a cloud for having done something terrible. And, and so we had an interesting back and forth about the rights and wrongs of, of, uh, of that. So it was quite a wide-ranging interview, but there was certainly an academic part of it and a very non-academic part of it as well. And would you say the situation for young people uh, has changed a lot since then? Whereas they sort of, you know, maybe with a loose grasp on reality, but look forward to their education and their careers uh, nowadays in 2017. Yeah, I think um, at the risk of sounding like, you know, a typical, you know, person in their late 40s. Um, but I think that uh, India post-1990 is kind of a different place. Um, I, and I go back to the initial point I made. I don't think kids growing up, especially in the cities, um, I don't think people growing up in India today feel that they are growing up in a poor country. I think the aspiration levels are incredibly high. The options are different and better. And I don't think you're straight jacketed into, you know, three and a half professions. You know, you're either an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer um, or perhaps, a, you know, you, you go to the IMs and that's pretty much it for career options. Um, and I think that world has changed. Today, people aspire for a very wide range of things and people fresh out of college get into entrepreneurship, start their own businesses. All of that was kind of certainly beyond our reach, both from an aspirations perspective and also from just a, the reality of how you would go about doing something like that. Yeah, uh, I remember um, the the concept of opening up was something that was being talked about when I was there in 1995. Um uh, you know, there was, I think, an economic opening that had happened just in the, I mean, I guess probably starting in 1990, as you suggest, um, where new, even things, new products were available that weren't available before. Um, and uh, ideas about loosening restrictions around getting money out and getting money in um, to the country were things that people talked about a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember actually even being at the uh, launch, the official launch of Windows 95 in Delhi. Um, and yeah, they could, you could play, you could play video in your web browser, which was, you know, quite the thing. Um, and yeah, there was this real sense of, uh, opening up and a very strong self-awareness 
and uh, national pride about it as well. That's true, actually. I mean, I, I think the India that you see today in in the 90s and beyond, that's one of the strong characteristics I associated with it, that there is a, there is a sense of pride. Um, you know, when I was growing up, made um, you know anything that was made abroad had had the shine, um, and and anything that was made in India was kind of seen as inferior. And I think that's changed. I think people now are proud about things that are made in India, and I think that all goes back to the cultural, economic, and social, you know, um, change that has taken place since that liberalization point of the early nineties. And how has Kolkata changed since um, you were there? Kolkata is, is a city that resists. Yeah, uh, it, it's a city that resists time, uh, and Kolkata changes uh, less uh, than most of the other places. Um, and and that's good and bad. I mean, it's 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 good because it has a certain timelessness to it, um, and and you can go back today to Kolkata and see a lot of things that haven't really changed at all, even visually from, you know, when I was 10, 12 years old. Um, and that's very comforting in a way, but also I think economically it has stagnated. I mean, in the 70s um, and even after the 80s, Kolkata was a very vibrant city. It was one of the economic centers of India. It's gotten a lot more marginalized now. And so barring a few specific companies and professions, you know, most people growing up in Kolkata now head out for for work. So it's a great place to visit, but I, I'm not sure if it's a hotbed for a professional as a professional option anymore. Um, my last, I think, India-related question is um, one of the Please. things that um, uh, people who follow, you know, tech and things like that would be aware of in India is the uh, identification process um, for individuals that mm-hmm. have been going on with um, biometric identification and uh, you know as I gather one of the very important reasons for this is that a lot there's a lot of um, well not a lot I shouldn't I shouldn't load it that way the government provides assistance to people in India as it as governments do everywhere Um, but often that um, link between the government issuing the money and that money getting to the individual it's intended for can be severed or um, uh, compromised and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, what you know about about that process? Um, I mean, I think hundreds of millions of people have been registered. That's true. So maybe I should preamble that first of all, I think this is only my opinion, and also that I think I'm probably not an expert on this. Um, I, I certainly have lots of friends who are much closer and much more um, are, are tracking this much more closely. But I think as a fundamental um, sort of data infrastructure, if you will, in a digital world, I think um, you know this is a this is a fairly forward-thinking move. Um, I know that across the world, in, in especially in the West, there's a lot of concern about tracking identities or, or going down the path of identity cards. Uh, and there is always going to be um, a kind of political question mark around it because that kind of data, that kind of power in the hands of the wrong government or the wrong regime um, can, can obviously lead to a lot of you know, unfortunate outcomes. But at the same time, a lot of good can come out of being able to actually track and deliver benefits to individuals. And, um, you know, I think as with every technology, it has a, it has a, it has a power to do good and the opportunity to be exploited. But if I was to take a positive spin and, and being a generally an optimist, I would think that this is something that in the years to come, uh, people will look back and think of as a really important milestone in the developmental story. Um, I think about, as you said, about 600 
million people or, or thereabouts have been, you know, put into the ID system. Um, obviously, there will be lots of issues around how it's implemented, and, and there'll be some at that at those kinds of numbers. There's always some implementation challenges, but I think the sheer scale of the project, the the aspirational um, audacity of it, and and so far the execution of it, I think, has been fairly impressive. Yeah, thanks for thanks for that um, uh, description of the, of the issues involved. That's very good. Um, I, I've I've got to say I myself am um, an optimist when it comes to this kind of thing. Um, when you watch political controversies around, say, voter identification in the United States, I mean, it it seems to me that the trade off um, might I mean optimistically, you know, sort of is is worth it um, in so many different ways. Uh, when it comes to issues around identification and the the empowerment actually that proper identification gives you um so uh back to you um you um uh, at one time how did you make your way to uh business journalism i'm curious about that that was just a combination you know of um of the fact that i'd come out of business school just a, you know a year or so before that i always had a had a um a, a yen for writing um, and when I met with the then editor of of Business Today, if uh, you look back at that period and if you look at Business Today magazine in that mid-1990s, you'll see that they were modeling themselves around being a, sort of a, an Indian HBR, if you will. There was a lot of focus on management writing and, and the latest thinking and trying to sort of build a body of knowledge around management. So I guess my profile suited that well. And I was able to use my, you know, business background, um, and and do a lot of interesting work around creating new models, uh, which would find themselves into journalistic output. So it, it ticked both boxes for me. Can you um, uh, maybe talk a little bit about one of your uh, favorite uh, stories or subjects from around that time? Sure. I would. I, I think. If I look back, some of them are still valid. Some of them have gotten very dated. But but I remember the piece that um, I spent a lot of time doing was around uh, the idea of time-based competition and just sort of using time as an important competitive parameter and then breaking it down into you know strategic uh, project cycle and individual time management and, and sort of looking at examples of strategic speed. You know, there were some very famous examples in the 1980s between Japanese motorcycle manufacturers who started churning out, I think, over 100 models a year in the in this model of time-based competition. Um, Honda was certainly one of them. I think the other one was uh, Kawasaki, but I'm not sure. But but that kind of you know using using time fundamentally as a as a competitive parameter and just being faster than your competition across you know, whether it was a strategic maneuver or a cycle time uh, improvement. And interestingly enough, that's sort of come all the way around. And, and that's what we talk about today a lot in terms of the, the clock of a Silicon Valley startup versus the clock of a, uh, you know, clock speed of a, of a large corporate. So that theme, I think, has survived. But I do remember I spent a lot of time um, exploring that model and trying to understand how best, you know, at that time, what companies were doing in order to be able to compete on time. Uh, that's really interesting about um, analogy to clock speed. Um, uh, it got me. It just sparked in me the um, uh, idea that, or fact that, um, clocks uh, tick more slowly the closer you get to a, a source of gravity. 
Yes. Um, and that uh, being near being near a big business might slow down your clock, um, as opposed to you know being a small startup. That's very true. I mean, I didn't think of it relativistically, but <laughs> I'm sure sure that can be explored into a quite an interesting piece as well. Um, uh, I saw also that you at one point worked for MTV. That's true. Uh, in the sense that I was at the time doing my own consulting work, uh, I'd set up as a, as a as essentially as a consulting firm, and I was doing both uh, consulting work and trying to use you know my spare time to um, dig around a couple of areas where I could think about doing a startup. Uh, and during that period, which was sort of between 2007 and 2010 the bulk of my consulting was with MTV. So I did I did do a number of projects for them. Um, and they were at the time uh, in the throes of moving from a from a tape and analog based world to a digital world. So we did a lot of work uh, around movement of media and moving to digital models, not just externally, but within their internal operations as well. Yeah, it's just, it just seems like a really, I mean, you know, exactly the place to be uh, for someone with the interest and expertise that you have. I mean, this intersection of, you know, television, pop culture, uh, and music uh, to the extent that they still do that. Um, uh, what do you think the challenges are for uh, media companies like that, um, you know, going forward now? They're the biggest challenges, I should say. They're always challenges. Uh, I think it's, you know, I'd be preaching to the converted if we sort of started touting or listing all the problems that media companies have had. But I think, you know, the biggest challenge, of course, is is that the revenue model is broken for for traditional media companies. And so, one of the big challenges that that all media companies have had to deal with is is the erosion of advertising revenue, um, and and that all sort of ninety percent of media historically use this very interruptive model. Uh, and and it's it's something that consumers, media companies, and advertisers sort of dance to, um, while everybody knows that that's pretty much when people sort of either turn off their sound or go make a cup of tea, and and that's been a, sort of an open secret, but it's sort of sustained the industry for a long while. But I think now that people have come up with alternative models, be it over the top television, um, you know, um, or other forms of advertising, and the fact that brands can directly reach consumers with their own messages, and they're not reliant on big media for reaching large audiences. All of that has completely broken the back of what has been a, you know, the gravy train, I should say, for for large media organizations. So I think that's at the core of their challenges. But equally, I think there's another very interesting proposition, um, which I think came out of a, a couple of people, I think they were Monbir Sony um, and a colleague of his who wrote a piece that came out in the HBR a while ago. And I, I really like that model, which is basically about the fact that, that in any network, value resides at uh, the edges or the core. Um, and so if you look at media businesses or the media industry as a network, that kind of translates to you either own the customer, which is at the edge, or you own the content, which is the core. And if you're if you're a traditional television channel, which is the bit in the middle, where you neither own the content nor the end customer, that's where you're sort of in the crosshairs for disruption, because all the money will flow and the value and the money will flow to those two ends. It's the people who own the content and the people who own the customers, which in the case of broadcast media is the platform owner. And I think that's the that's the model you're seeing today. 
that is the Netflixes and the HBOs who create original content. Um, and in the case of people like Netflix who also own the customer and have the billing and commercial relationship, that's where the value is. And and all your traditional television channels who are really sort of in the old world deriving value by connecting content to people, they have all been disrupted. It's uh, it's really interesting um, uh, when you talk about owning the, the content in Netflix. Um, uh, and I should mention, by the way, that um, when we talk about HBR, we're talking about the Harvard Business Review. Um, Sorry, I should have clarified. No, no, yes. that's, that's totally fine. That's, this, is, this is a jargon-filled podcast. Um, that's okay. Um, uh, we have lots of technical people. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I find the, the production of content and the changes that, I mean, just, you know, as an outsider watching, you know, the media around it for the last few years is just fascinating. I mean, when I think about, you know, uh, the model I grew up with where um, they manipulated the sound to make it louder during the commercial, of sort of, you know, the, 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 I hesitate to call it creative, but the, you know, the sort of creative impulse behind how can I assault the ears of people in their own homes in order to sell stuff uh, the switch from that to I've got to compete to make the best quality content in order to succeed is really dramatic. And is that, I mean, do you think that's a, is that a Pollyannish uh, understanding of the shift that's happening? Or is that really what's going on? Have we really moved on to a world where you make more money by just making better shows? I think there's certainly a big chunk of that. Uh, and I think that will lead us to a point where we will really question the number of media um, channels and outlets that we need. Um, because in the advertising model, it allowed the proliferation of a number of you know channels and we didn't really have to worry about them because somebody else was paying for it. But if you had to pay for all the content you consume, you'd be a lot more specific and, and I would be a lot more specific about which bits I really wanted to fund. And I think that would see a, a great narrowing of media of, uh, and, and of media channels. And a part of me thinks that's quite healthy because, you know, they always say if, if you're not paying for it, then you are the product. And that's very true of the advertising-driven model. Um, and, and, you know, again, taking a, taking a cynical view, that has led to a lot of challenges. You know, a lot of the stuff around clickbait pretty much stems from that need to derive advertising revenues. So I think in some ways the, the direct relationship between a media producer and, and a consuming, a paying reader or viewer is a much healthier one. But I don't want to suggest that, you know, we should just sort of all jump to a completely different extreme. I'm sure there's a there's place for sponsorship advertising and, and other creative models but i think it, it's just moving you know to one extreme uh, where we've been for the last many years and and arriving at somewhere that's a lot more healthier maybe a midpoint um, rather than try and sort of move completely to the other end of the spectrum yeah it's interesting that makes me think of um the you know discussion people have nowadays about um silos um and i hadn't quite gone down that path in thinking that moving to subscription-based models where you pay and then become more selective, you know, that could possibly have a, a, an impact on that siloing that we might be seeing happening in our societies. Absolutely. And that would lead you to an interesting question about entertainment content versus news content, because news content has a value beyond 
the individual there is a societal value in in consuming news um and and you know perhaps we need to be thinking about having different models for news and entertainment which we don't today we kind of mix them up and maybe one cross subsidizes the other but the fact that there is a societal value and and you know there is a value to news you should be seeing and watching versus that you would rather be watching if you had a choice there is that kind of trade off there as well right so so maybe there, there there's a there's a need to think about news and entertainment as two slightly different products that probably need to be funded differently uh speaking of news and perhaps uh on a level entertainment um you have a recent blog post where you talk about how things seem very unpredictable in the world right now um and uh as someone who works in the technology space in the UK i wanted to ask you a little bit about uh brexit um i just wanted to mention that i lived um in the country for about 9 years myself mm-hmm. um and for the last couple of years i was there i was you know working in the city on a uh you know work visa and so i feel a little bit of a connection when i hear about things like thousands of investment banking jobs uh leaving london and going over to the continent and elsewhere uh and as someone on the ground i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the sense is in london right now for people you know working in various sectors of technology and banking and things like that uh about what's going to happen going forward i think it's fair to say that there's a general air of uncertainty uh, and nobody quite knows what will happen because um while there is the the looming specter of a brexit and its fallout there are so many pieces of that that are kind of dependent on how the negotiations go between the uk um and and the to be elected new government because we have a general election coming up and you know the the ramifications that that are just not known at this point of time so a lot might depend on the specific outcomes of the negotiations but i think that leads to the point that most large organizations are having to sort of hedge their options at this point of time uh, certainly there are scenarios under which a lot of firms that are uh, european by headquarter or by their sort of um, profile may have to think very hard about what operations to keep in london and which ones they would rather move to another major european capital um and and the unpleasant profit prospect of having to break up the business into chunks where it it becomes less optimal for them perhaps to have to maintain more than one center or or, or have different centers for different parts of the business so there is a lot of lose lose scenarios of that kind um but um i think on the on the you know if you went and spoke to people on the street apart from the fact that everybody have a, would have an opinion on it i don't think people quite know what to expect and and so there's a lot of fear of of outcomes that you know people either believe or have been led to believe or a lot of irrational hope about outcomes that people have been again believe or led to believe but i don't think on an everyday basis the man on the street is is thinking that hard about brexit i think everyone just waiting to see how the cards fall and then they'll be able to make plans accordingly uh and the um uh on the subject of the rather than perhaps the sort of average person on the street but on the subject of the partisans um it's really interesting you had a quote in another blog post where you uh noted that Theresa May recently said if you're a citizen of the world and you're a citizen of nowhere um and you know as someone who's moved around a little bit myself i find that 
kind of ominous as someone who lived in the London of the expats. I find that a little bit ominous. Um, what's your, I mean, and you, you, you know, you've obviously lived and traveled and worked in different places. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk, you, you, you have a sort of uh, very nuanced response that you give to her quote. That's true. And, and again, maybe if I preamble it by saying this is just my view, mm -hmm. um, um, I, 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 of course, profoundly disagree with that kind of, you know, um, view because I think, and, and maybe to afford that I, 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 I've probably become a part of that globally mobile workforce that actually feels we are in a world beyond countries. I, I, I in, I mean, I, I would be happy to have a debate with, uh, or, or a discussion with yourself, for example, over a coffee about how we no longer you know, have, have we come to a point where countries are themselves kind of anachronisms? Do we really need countries? Um, and yet so much of our lives are governed, all our all our laws, all our regulatory environments are governed by countries, whereas most of our business and our social and our economic lives are sort of extra um, national in a way, in a way that we don't even think about it when we pick up the phone and talk to someone or we do business with someone or we visit a website and order something of a company you know, where the company is and where the headquarters is and where they might be paying tax is the last thing you're thinking of at that point of time. So in a way, we've gone way beyond countries and, and we are being pulled back uh, in, in this kind of environment into, into a world where we're saying, no, actually, countries really matter. Uh, and, and sort of for me personally, uh, is the hope that this is just a, this is a last gasp of nationalism before we really flip over to a, you know, a world where we recognize that countries are really, you know, um, almost fictional notions, as I think Yuval Tori says in his books. Um, they, are, they are, you know, after all, countries are basically country borders of fiction that we have all agreed to believe in. You have a really interesting way into this, which is through sport, which is something that um, I, yep. I gather you're rather passionate about. Um, and you had a couple of really interesting examples on your blog that I hadn't heard of before where um, an athlete can actually be eligible to play for multiple national teams at the same time. And this can happen for various reasons. There's one example of a footballer from Eastern, I think it was a footballer from Eastern Europe who, you know, could simultaneously play for, you know, Kosovo and I don't know, That's right. Germany and a number of other countries. And his, his, the, the the number and nat and uh, identity of the countries that he could play for was this sort of history of conflict and change uh, in European history, uh, and I just think that's a very interesting way to go into this question about nation, nation nationalism and nationhood, and where it starts to matter because you know when you have different nations competing national teams for example perhaps competing for the same player uh what does that say about the arbitrariness of national interest absolutely true um and and you know i i could i could link this back to what we we're talking about earlier as well uh, from the indian perspective because you know there was a generation uh, before mine let's say my parents generation where if you grew up in calcutta the chances that you would you know, your entire family, your social circle, you would marry someone from Calcutta. That was, you know, almost a given. It was it was the exception rather than the norm that you would actually marry someone from a different state 
who spoke a different language or came from a different culture. And of course, you know, there are, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of different subcultures within India. So, you know, in my generation, it was quite common that you just, you just, you, you found someone across the country and, and, you know, me and my wife don't share a common mother tongue. And that's so common in my generation that that's that kind of intermingling has has made it a very different place now. And I think if you do that at an international level, I think um, over the last I would say you know maybe fifty years, the the people just moving around a lot more, people settling, the intermingling has gone up. So today to try and draw lines even within families, it has become much harder. And so you know whether you look at sport, whether you look at you know um, you know I. Hopefully not, but if, if should there be a war, there would be so many people who would be so conflicted because they, you know, we all belong to more than one country. We, we own allegiance to more than one country. We grew up in one country and that never leaves you. And, and you live in another country and you have another allegiance there, you know, and, and maybe some of the other places you've lived in, you sort of carry a little bit of that with you. So in a sense, this is also a question of identity. And I think, you know, our identities are no longer tied to strongly to one country in the way that it perhaps was in a previous generation, uh, and and in a way that that's an identity question is in a way fundamental to this and the next generation. It's um it's really interesting these issues of nationalism and post post nationalism, and um it's I, I wanted to reflect a little bit on the um you know when we talk when we talk about we for example, um especially you know someone someone as yourself who seems sort of you know very much. Uh, you know, in the digital world, um, there do seem to be these, you know, huge divides in ways that, you know, when you're in your own way of living, it can be hard to understand really how different, you know, you are from other people. And I had this experience recently where I was in the queue at the post office and there was a guy opening up a post office box and the uh, clerk mentioned something about email and he said, oh, I never learned how to use a computer. Um, and he wasn't, this man wasn't, you know, very old, you know, he would have been early middle age at the most. And I thought about how, you know, for this person, I mean, I, 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 if he's never learned how to use a computer, I, I doubt he's perhaps even traveled outside the country at all. And his world of support and interaction would all be very immediate and, and, you know, right there, personal, you know, perhaps with a television, uh, bringing in stuff from outside the world. And I wonder what you think about that, you know, people who are kind of behind the digital divide, their networks are all going to be uh, right there and personal and kind of regional uh, and not, you know, international. You're, you know, absolutely banging on. I mean, and I think I, I, I do see that there is a, potential danger in in an argument that you know you and I could construct now which sort of correlates digital competence and awareness to sort of your worldview because um, you could you could argue you know putting aside the example you just cited that someone could be incredibly well read you know have traveled the world and still not know how to use a computer that's true but having said that you know in a more general sense I think the argument is valid in in that you know, if you if you cut back to 100 years, you may find that the average distance people, I think there's some data about this as well, the average distance people may have traveled from the place of their birth was a much smaller distance than people travel today. Um, and, and that's 
goes back to the point of the opening up of the world. It's it probably is a nod to you know the global mobility and and labor flows, uh, some of which is you know um, some of which is is forced on people unfortunately, but a lot of it is optional and, and voluntary. Uh, but it's just an opening up of, of opportunities, therefore, and that that comes from an ability to share news information, data about these opportunities and, and, and to be open about where there might be work or opportunity that I could travel to and an ability to. And I think it's really important that today we could travel somewhere and still be connected to our families, because I do remember stories of my grandfather, you know, being sent to London when he was studying and. And, you know, you, you leave home on a ship and, and it's only three months later that people hear about you for the first time. So the ability to stay connected is an important ally for us to be able to travel across the world and still be secure in the knowledge that our loved ones are safe and that our, you know, um, our friends and family uh, can be reached. So I think that there is certainly a, 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 a symbiotic relationship between the digital connected societies that we create and our ability to therefore use that same digital connectedness to be able to be very global. Um, and without it, it would certainly be a lot harder. So I, I broadly agree with, with the exception that I provided uh, that you could, you could actually be outside of the digital sphere and still be fairly well experienced and traveled. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for making that point. <laughs> it was very well said um, uh, and true. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting what you say there about um, you know connectivity because so often one can see from what I, I guess I'll call technologically conservative um, sources like the New York Times, for example, um, the representation of you know t we can use you know we can say digital or like you know you know the internet and computers as uh, mm -hmm. as um, forces for increasing isolation. Um, uh, and you know, that, you know, that comes across to me in the same way as a, you know, a priest watching the pews empty out, accusing everybody else of increased isolation. Um, you know, because at the same time as, uh, you know, people might be abandoning older habits or, or, or for forms of interaction, they're adopting all kinds of new ones, um, that help get them in touch uh, easily and free. I mean, you know, we're talking across a continent and an ocean uh, right now um, uh, for free. Um, uh, and then, you know, when this is published, you know, anyone will be able to listen to it and, and learn about you uh, in a way that we couldn't, people couldn't have, you know, even say 20 years ago and not nearly as easily or freely. And I was wondering what your thoughts are about that. I mean, about, do you think that we're spending, when we're spending times with screens, we're more alone than we used to be. Again, I'll have, I'll, I'll try and be balanced, but in my heart, I feel I think like you do that that um, I think fundamentally, I disagree with the option with the notion that that this technology makes you more isolated. Um, I think you can you can um, you can have a perception of that if you are not. Um, if you look at it from the outside, if you are not using a mobile phone the way perhaps your, you know, 15-year-old son or daughter are using it, and you're thinking, well, you know, when I was that age, I used to be out with my friends playing. But I think, as you said, the flip side is that it actually engenders a lot more different kinds of 
connects. And, and those are in many ways richer. They are more powerful in many ways. Um, so I absolutely fundamentally believe that it's a change. It's not, I don't think it's worse. It's different. And if you're on one side of the difference, it can come across as not good because you don't perhaps immerse yourself in the other world. Um, I, and I say that with the, with the you know, little asterisk that says, you know what, if, if you're at home and if you're with your family and, and, and you know, as I'm often guilty of doing and, and I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to what's happening on my phone, there are probably limits to that and, and you want to be able to strike the balance. But to sort of paint the whole thing as, you know, this whole technology and this this digital generation is isolated, I think is is doing that generation a big disservice. I think they are actually more connected and more there's more sophistication in that connection. Um, and, and, and that whole culture and that society will have its own norms about what and how and when you talk to people and, in, and how asynchronous conversations might sort of um, take over a bigger chunk of our lives. So I think it just, it's just a different kind of connect. It's a different kind of conversation. It's a different kind of social structure. And I wouldn't call it isolation. Um, I guess my last, uh, while we're you know talking about the big picture, my last big picture question for you would be, um, you know, you wrote about how uh, things seem unpredictable now, um, but at the same time, uh, part of something you're interested in is is trends um, yeah. in, in technology and society. And if I were to give you the opportunity to make one big bold prediction that no one will call you on if it doesn't turn out to be true, um, what might that prediction be for something big that's going to happen? in the rest of 2017. Uh, the, okay, so, so the 2017 is pretty much, you know, the near future. Um, I think, um, I think um, the thing that will occupy uh, a, a lot of us is actually how we start to use technology to, to help governments and, and regulators uh, uh, and I think there's we are I think on the cusp of this change, and I've heard of I've heard this word reg tech in a couple of forums, um, but I think that the the idea that governments are struggling to keep up with with uh, you know regulatory and compliance activity uh, because technology is leaping ahead could be turned on its head if if the same technologies could be used by governments by regulators. So uh, you know I could easily you know you could imagine artificial intelligence being used to drive better regulatory outcomes. So I think in 2017, we'll see recognition of the need for the use of technology and digital tools for the purpose of creating better laws that human beings are struggling to create. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge... Did you say red tech? Reg, as in regulation. Oh, okay. Reg, reg tech. <laughs> um, it, it has a ring to it, so I, I could I could easily see it catching on. It does. Uh, so I'm sure you'll see reg tech forums uh, and and events popping up over the next couple of years. Yeah, it's interesting. I know this is. Um, I mean, it, I'm I'm sure it's a preoccupation everywhere, but it's definitely uh, a preoccupation that people at some levels of government have here in Canada. I have a friend who works for a think tank in Ottawa, and this is you know that that is a big part of what he what he spends time thinking about and trying to educate people within government about um, is the power, you know, the potential power for regulating and, you know, just governing society that there is in emerging technologies. Um, 
On the subject of your book, uh, Doing Digital, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, why you decided to uh, write it. Um, two parts to that, actually. The first is um, that I, I really, uh, because I come at technology from a non-technical background, for me it's always been very fundamental to be able to explain to myself what technology is, what it does, and in a, if it if it can't be explained in in English and and in in a logical, constructive way, then it's really hard to get to grips with it. So I've been fortunate that I've worked with some technologists um, who are incredibly good at explaining in a non-technical or to a layperson the the fundamental building blocks of the technology. Um, but that's become a driver for me over the years to be able to um, to be able to understand technology without necessarily knowing how to code. And I, I recognize that in the digital space, there is this challenge of a lot of new technology, a lot of conceptually tricky aspects. Um, and But it's not just technology. It's technology plus design plus methodology. Um, all of this is changing, plus the whole data side of things. And because I guess of my background of being, you know, bouncing around from domain to domain. Um, I found myself actually in a position where I could, uh, I could have a, you know, a basic understanding of all these domains. And that actually put me at a big advantage, I think, um, because I wasn't a specialist in any one of these areas. So I was able to step back and look at all of them and sort of play with them in a way that I could bring them together. And I realized that that a lot of my colleagues um, and the people I meet struggle with because they either, uh, a lot of people obviously, as you know, are technophobic and, and they would rather not engage at all. Or a lot of people tend to be very specialized and then they see the world as uh, as as through their lens. So if you're, uh, you know, if you're a technologist, you see a technology world. If you're a design person, you see, a, you know, the user interface and experience world. If you're a data person, you see a different world. And the reality is actually it's all of these uh, and, and you don't want to lock yourself into any one narrow, siloed view of the digital space. So for me, the, these two are the motivations of A, being able to explain it in a layperson, and B, being able to pull together um, these different facets into some kind of cohesive whole so you can take one step back and say, okay, I get, I get what the whole thing looks like. Yeah, it's really interesting. You talk um, a little bit in, your, in the beginning of your book about um, how difficult it can sometimes be to explain to people uh what what a person like like you does um but you know and it's partly because you know you see things as this this intersection of all these different things whereas people often have a a sort of they get they get ensconced in their specialization and don't see um the connections um and uh you have this very great uh definition of what digital means and i'm just going to um say it here um it means exploiting emerging technologies to create customer or user centric experiences and data driven decisions leading to more agile, competitive and responsive business models, end quote. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, the connect, quantify and optimize execution framework that you talk about, because it seems to me that in a very practical way, it shows how all these things connect uh, when you're, you know, designing a business as it were sure i i, I think the, the the definition that you just read out um is more the conceptual framework as i said so uh. it's important to understand that that 
it's it's like a recipe book. You need you need something from the emerging technology box, and that might be you know robotics or artificial intelligence or or even mobile technologies. Something that sits in there. You need something that sits in the in the data box because that technology is going to give you some interesting new data, uh, and you need something from the design box because. In the digital world, I think a fundamental premise is people have options. All your users have options. And so if you don't give them something that is well-designed and solves their problem, they simply won't use it. Even if you are a CIO and that's the you know system you've rolled out, people will just go to whatever system they prefer. So you do need these three to be used in the right recipe to get to a digital outcome. Uh, and But that you know when you look at that conceptually, that makes sense. But when you try to execute it, What's the sequence? How do you go about it? And that's where I sort of thought about the connect, quantify, optimize model. And all that says is, you know, everyone you talk about in digital will 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 point to the the power of data, but the reality is you don't get the data up front. You don't just you know walk in and people don't give you the data. So you take a step back, and actually the first step is the connect, which means if you've designed something really well. If you solve the problem for a customer uh, or a user, uh, then you've built that connect layer, which means, you know, to give you a very trivial example uh, and an off-repeated one, if if you're you know, looking at a service like Uber, the fact that I, as a taxi driver and you as a customer, we can find each other, that's just the, the value of connect. And there is value in, in just the connect itself because now I don't have to walk out on the street and wait. I can just find you on my phone. You can find me and we can, you know, we can get to each other and transact. And you can see this in a number of different scenarios. But but just once you've connected is when there is the automatic exchange of data, the release of data. So now because you've designed this part well, I'm happy to share with you my information, my data. Uh, and you start to see as a user, what kind of rides I take, or as a, as a driver, what kind of you know, services I deliver. And that data then allows you the next level of value, which is the quantification. So now you can see that you know, in London, there is, a, you know, there is X amount of uh, demand or there is Y amount of supply, and that allows you to plan your business. It allows you to price your business and do all the clever stuff that you can do if you had all the numbers, for example, for any business. So the quantification comes out of the power of the connect. But then you get to the third part, which I think is the bit that very few businesses actually have gotten to with digital. Um, I would say about 5% at, at the top of my uh, off the top of my head, which is the optimized part. And, and I take Uber as an example because it, it nicely translates. Because what Uber does with search pricing, whether you like it or not, and, and you know, as users, we all hate search pricing. But what search pricing does is it allows Uber, based on the data that they collect, to tweak the economic model in a very local manner. So they can say that for this region, that may be a half a square mile. And for a 20-minute period, they can change the pricing model. And, and you can only do that if you have that level of granular data. And so that, I think, is the cycle of being able to actually optimize your business, not at a very generic global level, but in a very micro way, that's where the optimization comes in digital. Uh, and so ideally, all businesses should be able to work through the connect and quantify model. And then with the data they get, and that data might be very different for obviously for different businesses, but you will then get the answers and the nuggets of insight that you need that will allow to then optimize your business model. 
and and that optimization could be an economic optimization like Uber, it could be a service optimization, it could be something competitive, but that cycle then sets itself up. And the more you optimize and the more you quantify, the better you can then connect, and that sets up a virtuous cycle. Hopefully, that then takes your business for faster. Yeah, one one example that I, I don't know if it's in your I forget if it's in your book or in your blog that you talk about with respect to auto optimization is um, Amazon. Uh, applying for a patent for anticipatory yes. delivery, um, which uh, is the idea that Amazon, because, I mean, it knows what books you buy. I was talking with someone about this just the other day, you know, um, uh, Amazon's opening up for a while now some physical bookstores that they're experimenting with. And one thing one can imagine Amazon is doing is watching what books people from a certain area are buying on Amazon, on the website, and then perhaps stalking the local bookshop um, with those books, anticipating or, or having seen the demand. Um, but anticipatory delivery, I mean, I'll let, let you talk about it, but this is a really interesting concept. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, from, from the way I understood it, uh, what Amazon is also doing is it's setting, up, um, it's setting up houses across the world where based on its understanding, not just of books, but pretty much everything you order off the Amazon website, and, and we know that their repertoire is just growing, they will start shipping stuff somewhere close to you in anticipation of it's being ordered. Um, and if you sort of join it up with some of the other things that they're trying, which is you know drone-based delivery, and, and they will own their own entire supply chain, the, there is a likelihood that you, know, you may run out of something very trivial like you know, tea in your kitchen, and you may actually go to Amazon and order it. And it may get delivered to your doorstep within half an hour by an Amazon drone because, you know, their models have anticipated that X amount of sugar will be ordered in this area and, and the warehouse ready for that kind of stock. So, you know, I think it takes mind shift change for us to stop. And, and I know that lots of people will feel this is an intrusion or they'll feel that it's a bit creepy. But I think you have to stop thinking about it like that because this is no different from what any business has always done. It's just a like fine-tuned version of, of the way a, a Walmart or a Tesco might have stocked their local stores. But it's just that if they had better information and better insights and, and better prediction, they would have done the same thing. Um, but I think the idea is very powerful because of the granularity of that data that Amazon gets from each individual customer. It's really interesting what you say about how, um, in some ways, this is no different from what businesses have always done. And, I mean, you spoke, we, I mean, one of the themes of our conversation has been, you know, privacy and identification and and data and things like that. And, you know, there's this curious contradiction one sees where at the same time where someone might be very bothered by, um, you know, a company using computers to gather data on them and then serve up advertisements, you know, for example, uh, you know, you based on search terms that you've been using, you suddenly start seeing ads around things like that on other websites uh, when you're on the Internet. Uh, but at the same time, people will say, but you know what, I really that same person even might say, I miss that personal connection that I had with my local shopkeep. Uh, who they would have no problem divulging, yes. <laughs> you know, all of their Absolutely. personal, and not only their own, but gossip about other people yes. and their private yes. lives. And I just wanted to ask, I mean, I know this is a bit, probably a bit of an odd question, but what is it about the intervention of the computer that somehow suddenly makes people concerned? And I'm not just talking about how, you know, like scale and things like that. Like there really does seem to be something about this device 
that people find uh, uncanny. That's really interesting, actually. Um, and, and, and I don't think I've heard the question phrased that way, but it does lead me to, um, you know, privacy has many of these, you know, interesting little ironies, one of them being, you know, a few years back, we all know this, we used to, we used to print telephone directories and we would put everybody's name and phone number and address right. in, into a giant book and then we'd distribute it to everybody so that everybody knew everybody else's, you know, what we consider today to be very private details. And we were all okay with it. Um, it didn't matter that we, that we were being given each other's phone numbers and, and addresses. Uh, and yet we are now super concerned about that same information, you know, being shared with anybody else. So, so it's an interesting flip-flop. Uh, I think that the, the things that have perhaps um, suddenly moved the needle um, for a lot of people is how permanent this is um, and that uh, the sense that, um, you know, I think it just, it's just the awareness that this information could, could easily be used by anybody and that anybody includes people who, who you know, um, may have less than, the best interests at their heart in terms of what they want to do with their information. And it was always there, by the way. I mean, obviously people could have used the telephone directory to, you know, to stalk people or, or find out things about people um, and, and use it maliciously. But somehow I think the, the, the absolute ubiquity of the way this information on, on, a, on the internet spreads um, and, and the fact that we, we can be, found from far corners of the world by people who are not like us, so to say. So we go back to the whole, you know, people like us, nationalism, or, or in some way, localism argument. But I think all of those unknowns and, and those uh, the fear of who it might be that's looking at our data, I think is a part of the concern people have right now. Um, but I'll also say, you know, let me give you a different, a, a very different thought experiment, which is, you know, we've always, and I ask this of people who are more devout than I am, uh, you know, we, we, we always think of God as omni, omniscient. And do we worry about privacy? Because, you know, a, a super being like a God knows and sees everything. And, and at what point of time do we start worrying about, you know, um, people that we, or, or beings that we consider as, as super beings like gods, um, you know, having access to, our private data, and why does that not worry us? So, you know, you can take this in a number of different interesting ways. I, I think actually the, the, the reality is that uh, in many ways, privacy history, in, in, because we've all, we've given away too much of it. So I, I recognize that people may have valid concerns, but the reality is, you know, we leave, we leave trails everywhere we go. If you use a credit card, if you use, you know, a, 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 any kind of, urban travel card like an oyster, we are leaving these trails of information across pretty much everything we do. And I think that that genie is way, way, way out of the bottle and, and there's no way you can put it back. Now, I think going forward, we certainly need to come up with better governance and, and you know fair use of the data. And I think there is something to be said about rewarding the, the individual for the economic value of their data. And I think all of those I'm sure will evolve, but I think privacy is pretty much gone. Um, you, you have to work very hard to be private in today's world. 
Um, I guess my last question about this is uh, related to that, um, uh, both super beings and, and privacy and it, but it, I come at it from the direction of um, voice activated interfaces uh, or voice based interfaces. Um, and so the reason this is a privacy issue is because there's a sense in which, you know, your Amazon Echo might be listening to you or your Samsung television might be listening to you all the time, um, anticipating a trigger word. Um, uh, like what is it? Uh, hello, Google or okay, Google or right. um, using the name Alexa. And I was wondering, I mean, you know, in the context of the internet of things, just, just generally, what are your, your thoughts about, you know, where this technology might be heading in the future? I mean, am I going to be able to talk to my range and say, set to bake, set to, you know, 350 degrees bake for 45 minutes? Um, putting aside the privacy angle for a bit, I think voice is fundamentally important uh, as an, an option for the interface. Um, and I think uh, it, this struck me when I first started using Alexa um, because you can certainly envisage a scenario where a certain category of people, i.e. people who are elderly, who struggle with a, with a screen, who have, you have a, 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 for whatever reason, failing eyesight, you know, to have the option of being able to do the same things with voice is actually quite a powerful one. Um, so I, I could certainly see voice becoming a really important part of the mix. Uh, and yes, then you can apply to pretty much anything. You can you can set your fridge controls, your range, or or indeed, you know, open your front door if, if you know the person who's knocking. So just think of voice as an alternative interface. And I think it makes a lot of sense to have in the mix uh, for any number of reasons. Now, whether that translates to a device listening to you, I think goes back to the point of, do we have a set of guidelines and transparency about the governance of that? Because just because you, you know, you talk to Google and you say, okay, Google, and, and you're suddenly concerned about whether it's listening to you, but, you know, if an organization, you know, not necessarily Google or, or any of the big ones, if an organization decided to put a listening device into something innocuous, would you know? You know, it just so happens that now we are aware of that device listening. So if someone had, again, if someone had the wrong intent, the harm could be done anyway. Uh, so this being much more out there and open probably has a much better chance of being governed and the data being managed well, because now, you know, it's, 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 it's all above board. You know, it's obvious that there is some listening happening. And so those companies, be it Amazon or Google or Apple, are clearly you know, expected to provide enough evidence of the fact that they're not listening and storing everything that you're saying. So I think it's just the whole, it's that whole premise of when something is, you know, when you legalize something, it, it, it's much easier to govern in the same way that if voice is an ex accepted part of our interface, we will have better rules around it. But if someone had a listening device, let's say in a photo frame that I bought from a brand, I wouldn't even know about it. So the technology already exists to do that. So it's better that it's, it's in a in a space where it can be better governed and there are rules around it. Oh, thanks for that that really good answer. I hadn't quite um, thought of things from that uh, perspective before. Um, but uh, yeah, certainly uh, being open and upfront about things can help us help us manage <laughs> manage uh, transitions uh, to new technologies. Uh, it just it just makes the risks very explicit, I guess. So so that's yeah, it's easier to deal with. Yeah. Um, 
Moving on to the last part of the interview, um, I wanted to ask you uh, why you chose LeanPub uh, as a platform for your book. So this this goes back to my um, you know my delight at discovering LeanPub because while writing this book and obviously working through subjects like agile and and the whole idea of MVPs, you know, the, the thought struck me that it would be amazing to to write a book as an MVP and why, why don't people write a book as an MVP and then come back and, you know, do version two and version three because that would be so much, you know, it would be so cool to read a book and then come back and read version two and version three and, and to be able to see the evolution of the thinking, perhaps based on the debates that you've had around version one. And so, you know, I had that at the back of my mind when I started writing the book and I obviously didn't do much about it. And then I think while looking at the publishing options, um, and, and I will be, I'll confess that I don't remember exactly how I came across um, the, the Lean Pub site. Maybe it was through a search, maybe it was through an article, maybe I was reading on other sites about publishing options, but the Lean Pub model fit exactly what was in my head about the idea of being able to publish in an agile way. Um, so I, I was instantly sold, and, and until that point I was in this debate in my head about whether to try a traditional publishing route and, and talk to publishers or to do a self-publishing model. But the LeanPub, uh, the LeanPub, you know, once I came across LeanPub, it, that debate was pretty much over in my head because it's such a, it was such an easy way to publish and, and it was, you know, exactly what I wanted to. Great. And, um, uh, yeah, that's, it's always, I mean, you know, it's as, as excited as it, it sounds like you were to find us, we're always excited to see authors like you, uh, from our end as well, um, uh, which is just just great. And it's um, I wanted to act, I wanted to ask about something specific that you've done, which is something that a lot of LeanPub authors do, which is that you've actually uh, published an email address in the introduction, or uh, I think it's in the introduction mm-hmm. to your book, and invited feedback. Um, have you had any experience with readers giving you feedback yet? Uh, just a little bit. Um, I mean, it, it's very early days, and, and I'm. To be honest, I'm still, I, I, I've probably not understood this well enough and I'm still working on it. I think I'm still working on formatting it better because the last uh, time I uploaded something, there was a slight formatting issue. So I haven't gone all out with, you know, the, the publicity because I'm just trying to work through that cycle. And as soon as I do that, I will make a much bigger push. And then I suspect the volume of feedback will also go up, but I have had some feedback. Um, and, and again, um, you know, I, I, again, I think I make that point in my book that, you know, a book like this should be a dialogue. It is none of the points I make are cast in stone and each of them is an opinion that can be challenged. And I think that's a fabulous process that goes back to everything we've been talking about, that we are in a world where we can have this kind of dialogue, uh, between an author and a reader. So I, I absolutely look forward to, you know, a ton of opinion and comment that, you know, will push me to think differently, think better, think harder about some of the things I'm saying and perhaps come back to a version two, which is which is stronger and better than version one. That's a really um, exciting way to describe the process. I've never heard anyone put it quite that way before, but that, that uh, dynamic uh, and interaction is something that we definitely are happy to see authors like, like yourself um, exploring uh, with uh, joy. Um, uh, well, I guess uh, we've been we've been going on for quite some time, and it's been a really fascinating discussion. Um, and I wanted to thank you for being on the Lean Pub podcast and for being a Lean Pub author.
thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Um, some of the topics we talked about, obviously, around the bigger impact of technology in society have been buzzing around in my head. So maybe someday we'll be talking about a book that, that looks at some of the bigger issues. Um, and we can have this discussion all over again. Well, I look, I look forward to that day. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Len. It's been a pleasure.